24 years of corporate leadership, 8,000 employees that he's responsible for, four children, 22 grandchildren, 37 great-grandchildren. It gives me great honor to have Wes Cantrell on today, the former CEO of Lanier Business Products and Lanier Worldwide. So please join us today uh, for that in a few seconds. And also, we just launched our book on Audible. So Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, you can find it. Stick around, we'll be with you in a few seconds. Hello, everybody. Jeff Mason, your host of Simple Biz 360 Podcast. We are so honored today to have Mr. Wes Cantrell with us today. Uh, Wes, please uh, say hello and tell the folks a little bit about yourself, if you could. Well, hello, folks. My name is Wes Cantrell, and I'm just delighted to be able to speak to you like this today. Uh, I have an amazing career, starting as a technician uh, with Lanier and repairing copiers and dictating machines winding up as CEO of the same company. Uh, a lot of people ask me questions why I never changed jobs. And I said, well, I did change jobs. I just didn't change companies. Uh, nowadays, it's real popular to jump from company to company, and many people do that. And we see that all the time, and they're amazed that I spent all these years with one company, 46 years with the same company. But it was a wonderful ride. We transferred and moved around quite a bit. Each time they promoted me, it seemed like every two years, they had another job for me. It was an in-house promotion to a bigger job, and it was a great ride. During that period of time, when I got transferred to Baton Rouge, I met the woman of my dream, a beautiful girl who was 18 years old, and we married when she was 19, and we produced four children. Uh, we raised them all right there in Atlanta, and now we live in uh, um, Woodstock, which is a suburb of Atlanta, and, uh, of course, my children have multiplied like gangbusters. We have 22 grandchildren and 37 great-grandchildren. They're all over the place. And uh, they're just amazing to me, the simulation that I get from being around them and kind of being a patriarch to the family there to provide and protect this family. Protection nowadays in this culture for a growing family is a full-time job. And all of you who have families will know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's a wonderful opportunity to address you and speak to you like this. And we're going to talk about a lot of real interesting and sensitive subjects that I had to deal with during my career and how the Bible speaks to each and every one of those. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for being with us, Wes. Folks, you're in for a, a real treat. And uh, just so if you want to catch us, we're on YouTube. We're on Gab TV, uh, which this will not show up on. It's going to be a little too long. Uh, but on a weekly episode, we're on IGTV as well. And then you can catch Wes's interview on 28 listening platforms. So Pandora, iHeart, Google. I mean, you go down the line, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple. So uh, enjoy this. Uh, it's going to be a real special episode. And what's the connectivity between Wes and I? It's a very interesting one. Uh, I worked for Lanier Business Products out of New York City. I sold dictation equipment in lower Manhattan. And Wes, at that time, uh, had, it was the president of Lanier Business Products. And then I'm in a small fraternity. I actually then, uh, in 1992, went over to work for a company called Oxford Industries. And if you uh, go back and look at the, the 
uh, lineage of the Lanier brothers, which started Lanier business products um, really back in, um, you know, it was back in the 30s. And they uh, they actually uh, then bought a part of Oxford Industries in 1942, all three of them. And eventually a gentleman named Hicks Lanier branched off from that Oxford trio in 1947. And he went back and really nurtured the Lanier business products uh, company in the Atlanta area. And that was Wes's first boss was Hicks Lanier. And when I went to Oxford, my CEO was Jay Hicks Lanier, the son of Hicks Lanier. So I'm in a very small fraternity. It's worked for both Lanier Business Products and Oxford Industries. They're an apparel manufacturer. Uh, own Tommy Bahama, if uh, that gives you an indication who they are today. And, uh, you know, it's just, there's so much cool stuff. And, and you know, before I just get into all the questions, Wes, I just want everybody to know, Lanier Business Products was a sales machine. Uh, Hicks Lanier was an enthusiastic salesman. You know, he was, he, they, Lanier Brothers had sales in their blood. And you, you folks at Lanier taught us skills that I know I'm speaking for a lot of us listening today out there that are excellent here, um, employees. We use those business skills to this day on a daily basis. I know my, I know I do. I know plenty of others that I've talked to personally that do. So we thank you for that wonderful, um, foundational training that you gave us back then. So w- without any more to do, I just, I'm so excited about this to let Wes share, uh, pearls of wisdom stories and just uh, some really cool stuff that that I'm sure you'll enjoy. So Wes, without any further ado, let's uh, start. So um, go, let, let's take you know the audience back to your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what was your family makeup at that point? I grew up in a, a, a little country town called Hiram, Georgia. And back in those days, if you had any money, uh, you had to find somebody who would pay you to do something. And so I was very ambitious and needed money. My parents weren't able to, to support me like I, with any money that I needed. And so uh, I repaired bicycles and I, I, I bought old bicycles that were scrapped and took them apart and made bicycles, which I sold. I had two paper routes. I had the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution when we were two separate newspapers, one in the morning and one at night. Now, you might say I had a, um, what would you call that, a uh, uh, where I had a total lock on the market in Hiram. If you got a newspaper in Hiram, you got it from me. I think the federal government made that against the law. But uh, it's the only time in my life I had that kind of an opportunity where if you got a paper, you had to get it from me, and I loved it. Uh, it That's was awesome. a great experience. That's awesome. But another thing I did that mystifies a lot of people is I was a chicken catcher. And in that community, there's a lot of chicken houses and in each house, there's 18,000 chickens. And when they grow up and they're about uh, 12, 15 weeks old, uh, they're ready to go to the processing plant. And somebody has to catch those chickens out of the house and load them into coops and chip them off. And I took one of those jobs. You're at 3 o'clock in the morning catching 18,000 chickens out of a chicken house and putting them in those coops. And it's a hard job. And you make a lot of money. I, I was paid $3 and a half a night for doing that. Uh, what it did for me is it gave me an incredible work ethic where, to me, everything in my life that I connected with, it was like it took hard physical work mm-hmm. for it to work because that's the way I grew up. And, of course, in our business, then it's somewhat physical but also a lot of mental. 
uh, and speech involved in doing the things that we learned how to do as salespeople. So I had this incredible background where, you know, if I was going to have any money, I had to to earn it by the school of hard knocks. And that transferred right over into my business career and, you know, making cold calls with a cock machine. Um, sure. No problem. <laughs> well, well, that's great. Well, no, thank you for sharing that. So were there any significant um, events in your childhood um, kind of triggers that, that really became started to really um, uh, plant the seeds of who you would eventually become? Uh, yes, that's a, an excellent question. And, and uh, I received Christ as my savior when I was about uh, 10 years old and uh at that time, as you know, I received the Holy Spirit, and all of those years, uh, he was in my life, sometimes subdued, uh, sometimes repressed, and then sometimes enriched, uh, where I would let him take more and more control over my life. The thing that I noticed mostly about those years is I had this inbuilt warning system that kept me from doing a lot of things that young people do. And so in my life, I grew up without any troubles and, and problems. Uh, through my teenage years because the Lord kept throwing the, it was almost like I had a referee inside of me that threw a flag if I thought about doing something wrong. Uh, and he threw the flag also if I did it, of course. But it, that was uh, very significant in my upbringing and yep. it had a lot to do with my value system and uh, valuing my relationship with him and also uh, what his word had to say about everything. Because at that time, I had no idea that his word spoke to business like it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned all of that through, you know, through ex- actually exercising. Well, good. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And, uh, you know, that gives us a little bit of insight to, uh, to that. So folks, what we're going to do is, uh, you know, a little bit about Wes's, um, youth. And now we're going to focus on a book that he wrote, uh, called from the shop floor to the top floor, releasing the CEO within. And I, I read that book and I draw, I drew the questions that we're going to talk about from there because it, it really gets you to see a lot about Wes. And I, I want to park here for a second, Wes, because I really want to encourage, uh, young business professionals. If you want to know, you know, how to set the cornerstones of your professional career. You want to know how to set the cornerstone of your life. You want really some good pearls of wisdom on how to do things. You know, let's, let's listen to what, um, you know, Wes has to say. It'll, it'll really travel many, many years with you and, and be very important. So Wes, I want you to, to focus if you could, or share, if you could, a unique story you have. And what it really does to me, the story, and you say in your book that it, teaches you how to do things exceptionally well. And it kind of set the stage for the rest of your 42-year career by doing this. But it's a famous story you have about a job, um, I believe, Hicks Lanier gave you. Could you share a little bit about that, that uh, first job you had? (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of shocking to a lot of people. But uh, actually, about two weeks after I'd gone to work for the company here in Atlanta, they told me to come down to the basement. Now, the basement was a place where we had storage and workshops and things like that. And Mr. Lanier wanted me in the basement. So I went down, of course, and um, uh, one of the workers there showed me this fishing tackle box that was all open with mud and seaweed and all kinds of stuff in it. And he said, uh, Mr. Lanier, won't you clean his fishing tackle? Uh, he is, um, he sunk his boat this weekend and he wants you to clean up his fishing tackle for it. Well, I'm sitting there saying, you know, um, cleaning a fishing tackle box, it, that is not in my job. To re- I just graduated from Southern Polytechnic at the top of my class. Uh, I had five job offers. 
and, and I'm put to this, this just makes sense. And I'm having all these thoughts. And then it was like another thought pattern evolved, and that was from my parents. And my parents told me as I was growing up that always you obeyed the authorities in your life. For example, uh, a teacher. Right. Uh, you were submission to the teacher, the pastor of the church. You submitted uh, a police officer. Uh, it was a pattern of uh, your, your parents. It was a pattern of submission to those who were in authority. That kicked into my thought process, and I thought, hmm, so maybe I should do this, like he says, because right. he is the boss. In fact, I noticed his signature on the check that I got every two <laughs> weeks. I go, I like that. And so, <laughs> so I decided to clean his tackle. And not only did I clean it, but I took a I took it over to a wash basin and cleaned it out and got it all completely clean, took all the lures and everything and polished them. And when he got it back, it looked better than it did when he bought it at yeah. Kmart. Yeah. So uh, it was um, wherever he bought it. So it was, um, uh, it was, he received that really well. It didn't say anything, but I believe that it, it, with him particularly, it marked the rest of my career because in all kinds of deals that I had to make, I could tell that he had great confidence in me, uh, even though he didn't display much confidence in anybody because he was a very self-confident man. Still with me, it was always like whatever I said was okay with him. And I know when we were building the Baton Rouge office, I came up to show him the plans for the Baton Rouge office, and Bernadine was with me, and she was sitting out in the foyer. And as I came in, he said, Wes, uh, didn't I see some woman out there with you? And I said, oh, yes, Miss Lanier, as my wife, Bernadine. He said, get her in here. She knows a lot more about building these buildings than, than me and you. And that just showed his tremendous humility, but he really understood the input of a woman into anything that you're sure. designing, how she could really see through a lot of things that us men just flat miss. Yeah. Uh, good illustration of how a woman is designed to complete the man oh. and uh, a great illustration there. But uh, Agreed. I think that fishing tackle story probably was a make or break for me. I yeah. think if I hadn't done it, sure. I, w I would not have made it. I, I would have changed jobs probably. I, I, you know, I think it's so, uh, it's just so, um, you know, it's such bedrock to the man you, you became in business because it, you know, it exercised humility, it exercised, um, you know, submitting to authority and just doing what you were asked to do. But I just, I love how you, uh, you say in your book that it also just taught you how to make sure that you did things exceptionally well. And that right. was certainly a hallmark of you. It is a hallmark of you and, uh, going forward. So, um, you say something very interesting in the book and I want to touch, I want you to touch on this. And I know it was a core component to linear business products too, but you, your quote was all development is self-development. Could you, uh, just elaborate on that for us? Yes. Uh, it was a key breakthrough for me, um, really discovering that because when I became a manager, uh, of the Baton Rouge office. Um, I had no management experience. Uh, I used the illustration. I think I'm, I'm not sure I used it in the book, but I, I have used the illustration of being a, a catcher on a baseball team and the owners of the team sell you to sell out to a hockey team. And now you're going to be a goalie. Uh, and now you're a goalie and you don't know how to skate. And it'd be a little difficult. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the illustration that I used. And I had no idea about what I was supposed to do. Also, I had a boss that didn't like me down there, and his culture was completely different from mine. And uh, uh, just everything about it was hard. 
it was so hard I'd actually begun to look for another job. And I hate to admit, admit it to all my fellow employees, but I actually interviewed with Xerox, uh, which is, uh, you know, like going into the enemy's camp. <laughs> so uh, I did not, didn't get offered a job. I don't think they liked me. So, <laughs> oh no, I did not get offered a job, but I, I wouldn't have taken it anyway. But at any rate, um, uh, as a result of going to 3M to one of their management development schools, uh, they had this professor and he, he lectured us on how you're responsible for your own development. He's basically saying, if you're in a job and you don't have an MBA, you know, then you need to get the equivalent of a job. And if it's a big thing with the company where they have it on their checklist, then you go get an MBA. You can get one on the week doing weekends and all that kind of sure. If, if you, uh, if you read books or you have consultants or people that, uh, that you trust that know how to do things, uh, you can help get help from them, but you develop yourself, you develop the skills that you need. You're not just going to sit there and cry and say, woe is me. Yeah. Uh, look what I've been dealt this terrible hand, but you figure out how to do it. And in the process of developing yourself, it becomes an ongoing process. It never stops. Yeah. You'll be developing yourself from this point forward. And you're never really, you never really feel like I have arrived. Uh, one of the yeah. problems in business is you have a real successful quarter, a real successful month. And you think that's it, man, I've reached the epitome. No, you haven't. Yeah. Uh, there's still going to be other reaches that you have to do. And I learned that over and over and over again. So the idea of all development being self-development, it's not something somebody else does to you. It's something yeah. you do to yourself intentionally. Right. Yeah. Very thank, important thing. Yeah. Thank you for illuminating that. And certainly, uh, as I mentioned, it was a core component at Lanier Business Products. And I remember uh, my regional manager, Terry McManus, um, who many mm. of us remember fondly, um, you know, he, he pulled me aside one day and said, hey, do you want to develop further? Do you want to become a better professional? I said, yeah. He says, well, read a business book a month. And from that business book, take at least three things, a minimum of three things out of that book. And at the end of the year, you know, you're going to have 36 new arrows in your, in your quiver to do business with. And just think, you know, so, and, and it was just, but it was that ongoing ob observe, absorb, you know, you know, look at situational, you know, uh, situations through a lens of observation and learn something from that so you can take it to the next situation. So I, you know, I applaud you for, for highlighting that and young folks out there, that's really a, you know, we encourage you to have a thirst for that continue and continuous improvement process, if you will. So, uh, thank right. you. Thank you so much for that. And, and Wes, in line with that, you also talk about having a teachable attitude and about the role of humility as it relates to improvement. I know it kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said, but is there anything you want to share, add about teachable, you know, um, attitudes and humility? Uh, I think the from the start of my career there, you see, I submitted myself and Miss Lanier learned that, that I didn't think I knew it all, uh, that I was teachable. And I think that was valuable to him. And later on in my career, uh, I began to see just how being teachable all the time, never thinking that you have arrived, always continuing to study and grow and learn new things. So important in business because yeah. if you don't, one day you wake up and the whole world has just left you behind. And um, it, and at Lanier, you know, our products were changing. And as I got into higher level positions, I was really very involved in product development for the future and product selection for the future. And that became really important because everything was changing so rapidly. And we had to be sure we had the right products for our customers or otherwise our sales force 
would be hard pressed to sell products that were not, were not state of the art. So just a lot of uh, yeah. uh, the idea of, of the idea of not ever arriving, continuing to improve, continuing to. Uh, there's a Japanese word, by the way, it's called kaizen, which means continuous sure. improvement and working with the Japanese. I really learned that because they were sure. so good at that. I mean, yeah. I loved working with the Japanese. Yeah, yeah they've yeah. yeah, they've really shared that in the automobile industry here as well, too, in many in large ways. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Did they ever? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So very good. So I uh, will. I appreciate uh, you uh, talking about that a little bit. And you know, I, I think that a lot of coaches talk about the benefits of failure as it relates to success. What's your take? Because uh, I know you speak about it in the book, but you know, what's your take on the role of failure in becoming more successful? Well, I think uh, uh, failure is kind of like hitting the wall. It's like in life in general. Things happen where everything that you thought was going to happen in the future is all of a sudden closed out. It's not going to happen. Right. Uh, one of the greatest illustrations I have of that right now in my life is losing my wife because I never anticipated that she would die as young as she was. She was only 82. And uh, that's called hitting the wall. So you have to figure out, what do I do next? What is my, what's my job? Uh, and that happened, that's happening to me either right now as we speak. But particularly in business, you hit the wall. And when you hit the wall, that's failure. What do you do? And, you know, typically most of us want to escape. And so we change jobs, which you take the problems that you have with you to a new job. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, or uh, you get a divorce or um, you um, start maybe trying to get relief by drinking or something like that. And we yeah. see all kinds of people that respond to uh, failure in different ways, but the uh, it's always based on trying to escape whatever it is. But the answer is to find out what God has in mind for you in the future and go with it with a whole heart. He is not for failure. He is for winning. And uh, he will give you the strength and the courage to do exactly what you need to do when you trust him. And that's what I learned the hard way. And it's hard to get that in the heads of, of people so often because yeah. uh, you're uh, often yeah. they're, they're turned to other ways of getting relief. Yes. And uh, failure is such a great platform for uh, that thing in Baton Rouge when I was failing so desperately that the, the, the success that came out of that is beyond measure. Yeah. Like we just leaped off the pages. We were so successful. Yeah. Well, and it was, yeah. it was all the hand of the Lord blessing us and sure. blessing the behaviors that we had learned. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, uh, folks, just to let you know this, this you know, myself included, uh, you know, here I work for uh, West Cantrell and Lanier. You know, I cer certainly excelled there, and it was uh, 1987. I go to another company, uh, excelled in that company for four years, became a Christian in 1987. Yet, in 1992, here I am in a parking lot in uh, Berwyn, Pennsylvania, Paoli, Pennsylvania, um, after I sold my last uh, $100 worth of Pittsburgh Pirate baseball cards. And I remember going down the elevator and I was dead broke. I was in, I was going down the elevator. I went into my car. I sat in my car, began to cry. My, and why, why did all this happen to me? Because I took a risk with my dad as an entrepreneur. We put everything into the company and I had to leave the company and I had just exhausted every financial avenue I had. And I went to sell my baseball card collections and that was the last of my collection. So here I am, you know, 
uh, eight years after starting work with the company that you were president of at that time, learned all these great skills, became a Christian. Life isn't perfect, right? You, you have hardships. And, and the failure yeah. was, here I was, how I'm crying in a parking lot, no money, zero money, 1992, two kids, you know, two young girls, what do I do? And, you know, it just, it's those moments in life where you have to draw on your faith and you have to draw on your inspiration to get back up after the curveball. Look at failure as a teachable, you know, as a, va a vast array of teachable lessons that you can take on to the next venture. And, you know, glad to say I've been, you know, running a company for the last 15 years. And so, you know, praise God, right? I mean, but, you know, the, the point is failure was essential to that. So I, I appreciate you illuminating that. And I wanted to spend some time myself on that because it's a big part of my story. And, uh, you know, a funny thing is I was in charge of the, of the, uh, benevolence uh, committee at church in 1992. And so I had this, you know, I got everybody on board. Let's do a food closet for people that are, you know, have run out of food. Do you know who got the first two bags delivered to them out of the food closet? myself and my wife and we sat there Wes when they delivered when they delivered the pasta and the canned goods I mean we just stood there in our hallway in our foyer and cried I mean it, what else could you do it was so humbling yeah. but you know what you just keep you know we, thankfully we got up and and we went to bat again we took another swing and uh, that's what you keep doing so uh excellent now you mentioned something in your book that I really think is fascinating and um it's about your reaction to net to leaders that lead in a negative way. And I want to park on this for a second because we hear, you know, if you really go into the belly of, of marriage counseling and you really understand the, the, the main contributor to bad marriages, a lot of times it comes out that it's the response of one of the spouses to what the other spouse says or does not so much what they're doing, it's their response to it in a lot of ways. And you made some interesting illustrations in a book, talked about it. We all run into negative, we all run into leaders we don't admire, we don't like, they don't, their value systems don't line up with ours, they don't align with us, you know, individually. But yet we have to work for them, we have to, you know, as you said before, submit to that authority. But, but most interestingly, you, you said be cautionary about reacting negatively to those leaders. Could you talk about the reaction that you, 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 you speak of? Yeah, a lot of that practice came from working with my, my boss who had a lot of really strong ideas. And I viewed my job as, this is when I'm the president, he's the CEO. And I viewed my job as, as helping him be successful. And whenever he would give me some idea that I thought was not going to work, it was real treacherous because if I confronted him, uh, he didn't take that very well, and I don't blame him. Sure. But what I had to learn to do is to give what I would call a creative alternative where you would say, well, you know, uh, Gene, um, here's, here's an idea that I have. See what you think of it. And you tell him a better way to do what he wants to do. It accomplishes the same thing, but it avoids the problems or the pitfalls that are, that are built into it. And I found that in many cases, he bought it. And, and, but if I just said to him, that's wrong, we can't do it that way, you know, I was, I was, I was going to be out the door. So uh, I think the idea of, of reacting that way positively, uh, and also um, the, another thing that I learned is that uh, he expected, if he had an idea, a quick decision, he was a shoot from the hip 
kind of quick draw guy. And he wanted me to say, yeah, let's go do that. But if I had qualms about it, I would say to him, would it be okay if you, if I slept on this? And uh, he would, usually he would say, okay. Now sleeping on that in my vernacular, I mean, I was going to pray about it sure. uh, and pray about the decision. Uh, and Gene, um, the vernacular that he liked was sleeping on it and that worked. And even though he was shooting from the hip, sometimes he'd say he wanted to know when I was going to give him my, my thoughts. Sure. I had to tell him the time. So I'd say, I'll see you tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and I'll, and I'll tell you what I think. And so that gave me time to create a, a creative idea and to, to speak to the Lord about it and get his input. And that, of course, is perfect in every case. And that's how we did it. And that would work in any situation where you're being told by a boss to do things that you know instinctively are just not going to work. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love that uh, measured approach. I love that cautionary approach you have where you don't just, uh, you know, um, fly off the handle and give your opinion or your point of view. You know, you really, um, you really let it bake in prayer and, and, and time and patience, right? Uh, which, which exactly. I think is, which I think is great. And so Gene Milner, um, which, which Wes is referring to Gene at the time, Wes became, um, president of Lanier in 1977. Uh, but before that Gene Milner had been president and then I guess a CEO. And so Gene was the CEO when you were president in many cases, right. And he was the president when you were a district manager, a regional manager, correct? That's right. Yeah. So Gene, uh, you know, two different value systems in a lot of ways, very dynamic salespeople, both of you in your own right. And, uh, but, uh, you know, different and, um, Gene could be, you know, um, it, it could be oil and water and I hope I'm not paraphrasing incorrectly, but you know, uh, it seemed like that. And, um, so, you know, these, uh, reactions to leadership choices, I think are a, a message to anyone listening. I mean, your grandkids, your great grandkids, you know, church members, and anybody listening in cyberspace, man, just make sure you're, uh, make sure you don't say something you don't want to. Just, you know, let some time get in, in between you and your reaction to that, correct? Yes. Yeah. You have to learn that, um, you know, we used to say you, if you, you win the argument and lose the sale. Yeah. Uh, and this whole thing is like a, it's it's another an archetype of of sales methoding where a customer gives you an objection and you give a creative alternative to it. Yeah. It's, it's a, a very valid sales approach. Uh, I would not want to to tell Gene I was trying to sell him on anything because that would turn him off. Although he was a consummate salesman, uh, but uh, he appreciated the time and effort that you put into thinking. And there were many cases where he would come to me. He'd come down to my office and say, Wes, I'm going to ask your opinion on something. And I would tell him, and he'd say, great, and walk out. Yeah. And he would do exactly what I said. Yeah. And when we bought the first mainframe computer, which was a huge decision for us, it was about long in about the same years, he actually said to me, um, Wes, I, want, I think you have a deeper understanding of this technology. I would like you to, to pick the final uh, vendor that we're going to go with mm. uh, and, and hire a guy to head up the department. So I did all of that. Uh, and it showed you just showed how much confidence he had in me. I think that filtered down from the episodes with Hicks and others that I'd had with him. Uh, but when he saw that, um, I think the big thing with him was probably when I fired the top salesman in the company, <laughs> he, 
It was it was big news. Well, let's let let let's talk about this because that was my next question. I mean, we got to segue into that. So, folks, listen. This is a great story. Wes Wes through. You know, really thinking through it, praying through it, obviously, but he ends up firing the top salesman in his region. Tell us how this happens and what happens next. I love it. Well, Bill, the uh, top salesman of the company, when he, and I had been promoted back to Baton Rouge as district manager. It's the job I didn't know how to do, of course. But the guy, there was a guy there who was top salesman of the company, and he thought he should have gotten the job. And so, and I didn't know, I mean, the guy's productive. Um, he, he, as a salesman, he used a lot of techniques I didn't approve of, like lying to the customer, and we had to go back and do a lot of patching behind him. But you could say, well, he was kind of worth it because he was really producing a lot. And um, uh, But I found out that behind the scenes, he was manipulating against me, still thinking probably if he could get me fired, he would get the job. That's probably what he thought. And uh, he, um, uh, a lot of times at a meeting, um, he would take the guys around the corner for a beer, and he would tell them how stupid I was. And so I had one guy that worked in the organization that told me, he said, Wes, you really need to know what this guy's doing. And he told me about that. And I said, wow, now I understand why it always seemed like I was swimming against the current. Mm. And so I decided, um, after um, uh, going to that management school, I decided that um, disloyalty was an intolerable offense. You could not have somebody who was in, intentionally in disloyalty. Sure disloyal to you. So I made the decision to fire him. So I came back to Baton Rouge and he had once a trip to New York and he was all elated by Penny comes in my office. And I said, Sandy had a good time in New York, right? Well, it's your last one was near, get your stuff together and get out of here. Uh, get all your stuff packed up and get out of here. And he looked at me like he couldn't believe it, uh, but he left. And, um, uh, and of course the, as you might imagine, uh, sweet, flavors wafted throughout the entire company because everybody disliked him and but they need to know that I was really in charge and so when I fired him you know that gave them the clue that I was really in charge but then I was concerned about the fact that I fired him without consulting with my boss that's Gene Milner and so I'm sitting there and about three days later uh phone rings and and Joe walks in and says uh, Wes it's Gene Milner on the phone for you I said oh boy this is going to be it <laughs> So he says, hello, Wes. He said, I heard that you fired that SOB. And he said, I always knew that you'd have to fire him, but I waited. I wasn't going to tell you. I waited till you got your guts together and did it. And he said, today you became a band, my boy. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and you, so and that you, was, yeah. Wow. That was a great, uh, a great, I mean, I was yeah. so relieved because yeah. I thought fire the top salesman to come here. I mean, you know, I thought he's going to fire me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and share with us how, how high up the productivity of that office went after that. You, you, went oh, after that, uh, it was like the office was on fire and, uh, we just blew the socks off of everything. The sales that year from the previous year were over double. Uh, and that didn't last very long because they called me and asked me to come up to Baton Rouge. Yeah. I mean, to Atlanta to talk. Yeah. And I went up to Atlanta to talk, and what they talked to me about is I was moving back to Atlanta to be in charge of the entire dictating equipment division yeah. of the company, of two divisions, copiers and dictating at that time. Right. It was a big promotion, moving back to Atlanta. I came back to Atlanta, and I sat down with Bernadine. I said, honey, um, and we had a, three children at that time, and, and uh, number four was in the oven. Little Julie was about to be born. And, uh, 
so she said, uh, she'd been telling me the house was too small. And I said, honey, uh, I've got some really great news for you. Uh, I'm going to get you that new house that you want. It's going to be bigger and better. It's going to really fit all of our needs. And she, I said, there's just one little piece that you need to understand. That house is going to be in Atlanta and not in Baton Rouge. <laughs> now, my wife, uh, she was a champion. And every promotion I got, she was behind it 100%. I ran into a lot of guys when I promoted them. They had wives that were crying and screaming and not wanting to leave their mothers. And I understand that. And I'm sympathetic with it. But still, and all, to have a wife yeah. who supported my career like that is amazing. Yeah. I mean, she would say to me, every two years, I just put on, she said, should I unpack the things this time because you're going to be moved in two years? Should I unpack it? Or just leave a pact. I would say, well, honey, you know what I know. I yeah. mean, you know, I don't know what this crazy stuff is going to do with me. Wow. But if we get a promotion, it's a good promotion for the career. Uh, I think it'd be good. And I would say also, you know, it dawned on me that God has a plan for us to be in all these different places. And I look back on it and see what we learned in each location. Yeah. Gulfport, Mississippi, Augusta, Georgia, Baton Rouge, and then back to Atlanta. In each place, that was yeah. a, it was a period of major a growth both uh, emotionally and spiritually yeah. and uh, in terms of skills of running the business, great periods of yeah. growth. So he had in mind something yeah. in every one of those locations. And so uh, I just say to emphasize the fact that I married a really good woman yeah. who en encouraged me in those relocations as compared to some people that I dealt with where I actually met with wives yeah. and they cried, and they didn't want sure. to go, and took a lot of selling and uh, and I reached the conclusion, Jeff, that I really didn't want to move somebody somewhere where God didn't want them. Sure. So part of what I was trying to find out is if God wants that person to be in Waxahachie, Texas, then yeah. I'll talk to him about it and see what he does. Yeah. Instead of trying to push them or make them go or threaten yeah. them by never getting another promotion, those kind of promote, those kind of threats are used. I just I decided not to do that, but to just gently yeah. say, "Here's what we have, and here's what we'd like you to do." So all of that came yeah. out of uh, uh, that yeah. episode, you know. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, look at that, folks. You know, and, and some great, thank you so much, Wes. Uh, some great takeaways here. But I think um, really if you're a young business professional, you're a young leader, you really understand there's deception that's being practiced in your midst amongst your, um, you know, associates that report to you. If there's undermining that's going on, if there's things that are, that are there that you know are inappropriate. You know, here's a great lesson to take away in, in listening to a man explain that he stepped out and did what was right, no matter if the guy was or gal was, you know, the top performer, which this gentleman was. But not only did the not only did the productivity accelerate to the point of grew four hundred percent from from when this gentleman was there, but you know, got the call from the CEO, got the invite up to Atlanta uh, to, to get a bigger job. And, and the message I want to make sure that that sends, Wes, to the young people listening is it's okay to, it's okay to manage by your convictions. And character matters. And character, you say um, in your book, you mention character over currency. Could you right. elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's really what you, it, it, it has to do with the focus of your life. Is your life focused on money, just making money? And if it is, uh, that's the currency. Uh, you're going to do a lot of bad things probably because you make it due to workarounds and cut corners. But if you focus on developing your character 
that is the goodness uh, and the ob obedience that comes from the person of character, dependability. Gene Milner once called me Mr. Dependable. That's, that's probably the best compliment he ever gave me because he didn't give very many compliments. He was more a, a kicking in the backside kind of a guy, you know. <laughs> but he did tell me he did tell me one time, or he re referred to me in one speech that he made as Mr. Dependable. So um, that character means that um, you can judge exactly what a guy is going to do uh, in the future uh, based on the behavior of the past. And it's very wonderful to do that because you know in promotion, uh, if you move them somewhere, they're still going to get their best effort. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be honest and they're not going to make you think or try to make you think that they're doing better than they are when the facts will speak for themselves. So in that whole thing, character over cur currency, uh, I'm writing about the selection of people and the promotion of people and the recruit recruitment of new sales reps and how important it is to determine the character of the individual rather than their sales ability because the sales ability can be built on good character, but it yeah. can't be built on poor character. Yeah. So it'd be self-destructive. And um, I looked at in, in the book, I looked at the characteristics of the big leaders that are listed in the Bible and uh, like the characteristics of uh, pastors and deacons and things like that that are listening in the scripture. And I look to see is character there. And I'm doing this from memory, but the best I can remember that for a pastor teacher, uh, the quality, there were nine qualifications and of the nine, seven of them were character. Yeah. yeah. That gives you a, more than a clue. It gives you an absolute picture of uh, what works in business. Uh, the old man that um, founded Chick-fil-A here in Atlanta, Truett Cathy, sure. a good friend of mine, and, and uh, they spend more time in their recruiting process on character and determining the character of an individual than any other thing. Yeah. And uh, Truett was a, a great God-fearing man, a wonderful man, a good friend of mine. And uh, he was the guy that really made Chick-fil-A known for its customer service and its love of its customers with, with not only good performance, but also uh, with uh, a great product. Yeah. In fact, one time I was in a meeting with him and, with some other businessmen, they're talking about various things. He said, <clears throat> they said, what's the most important thing in your business, Mr. Kathy? And he said, that's real easy. The food needs to taste good. <laughs> Isn't that a great simplification? That is. That is. I mean, <laughs> the seriously. The food needs to taste yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, 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 uh, yeah, wow. How monumental is that? You know, it's pretty, uh, pretty basic. That is huge. That is huge. But, but I got, I got some of my ideas about yeah. putting the customer first from Truett, yeah. but uh, but really it came. Uh, maybe there's another time you want me to talk about yeah. it when the light went on in my head of what what I wanted the company to be if I became CEO. Yeah, and, well, and, yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to. I'd love to spend time on that. And because you're because you're leaning into something that is that is my epicenter and my epicenter uh, going back to 1988, Wes. I read a TARP study that illuminated um, what happened to people when they had bad buying experiences. And so I became infatuated and thirsty and hungry for learning more about um, the, you know, the, the point of view of the customer through their lens. How was that business buying transaction experience perceived by the actual customer? And so I started focusing on the customer experience before it was a phrase, before it was a term back in 1988. That's what my book is about. That's what my, my uh, you know, consulting company is about. 
It's about increasing, uh, improving the, rather the customer experiences. And so you, you, you are now. Um, by the way, I have to say something—a cool fact I found out just uh, recently. You were appointed president of Lanier in 1977. Jay Hicks Lanier, the son of your first boss, was appointed president of Oxford Industries in 1977. Kind of right. cool, huh? <laughs> pretty cool. So, uh, anyway, but I, I wanted to say that you know you you developed over time this idea about putting the customer first. Um, you ended up calling it customer vision, and you rolled this out. Could could you elaborate on that whole um, emphasis, if you will? Mm-hmm. I'd love to. That's uh, one of my favorite subjects. I was sitting in a seminar here in Atlanta one time back when I believe I was president of the company or below that, and the uh, speaker said, Proverbs 22.1, and the Bible says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And so he said, the speaker, he said, what a great way to build a great business, to build it on the basis of having a good name. And you choose, every time you choose, if it's going to cost money, you spend the money to have a good name. So I'm sitting there in this thing, and my mind is whirling, and I'm saying, boy, I love this thought. And I, I thought back to growing up as a kid, my paper routes and everything, and how I tried to make the customer happy by, instead of throwing their paper in the front yard, putting behind the screen yeah. door. I did a lot of stuff like that because the customer, to make the customers happy. Yeah. So I had kind of a natural instinct to do that, knowing it was better for business. Uh, but reading that scripture, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, if I get the chance sometime in the future to be the head of Lanier, I will refocus this company on the customer. Not that it wasn't focused on the customer to some degree, but the focus of the company was more on the sales force than on the than on the uh, customer. Right. Not bad. Right. And but uh, but just not the absolute focus. So right. then the time came when I became CEO, and at that time uh, we had Harris. We had the Harris 3M company, which was uh, part of what had happened with the joint venture with Harris. And we had uh, we had acquired all those pieces, and all of a sudden we had Lanier Worldwide. And in the room, I had guys from uh, Europe, and I had guys from Latin America. I had guys from Harris Corporation. I had guys from 3M Company, and I had guys from Lanier. I go, okay, so we're going to put together a strategic purpose for the company. And we spent two days off in the woods and um, talking about everything, and. Um, I did not hire a facilitator on purpose because I was new as the CEO uh, and I had all these different guys I didn't even know that we had together. And I thought this would be my chance to really become their leader and see me in action. So I decided to facilitate the meeting personally. I did. And in that meeting, we focused around, we did strengths and weaknesses courses, the normal thing you do, the SWATs, you know, put them up on the chalkboard, we'll talk about all that. And out of that, we saw that we had this one one tremendous strength and the strength that they had was a customer service organization that was taking care of the customers on a daily basis. Usually a customer's product's not working. CSR shows up and he fixes it. And and, uh, he has a great relationship with the customer. So we talked about that. And without me putting a lot of English on the decision, we decided, we decided as a group, universally that we would be the best in customer satisfaction in the copier business. 
And when you make a decision like that, uh, it's really important that you that that decision is implemented. You know, it's it's like in every business, you've got the flavor of the month. The CEO gets up and says, here's what we're going to do. And everybody kind of laughs and said, yeah, this is the flavor of the month. What are we going to do next month? What's it going to be? Knowing that, you, you know, that you said, we've got to make a big splash. They have to understand that we mean this. And that means that you got to spend some money. So we did spend some money and we did research on copier satisfaction. We found out, by the way, that uh, satisfaction with copiers across the United States was only 47%. Mm. Only 47% liked the copier they had. Um, we found out that Xerox was worse than us, which was good news because we were about 48% at that time. But we, but, but without me spending a lot of time elaborating sure. all that we did, the training, sure. uh, the things that we changed, the, the awards that we gave, uh, I could go into all of that. Yeah. But it, in, in long story short, is we got our customer satisfaction up in, in a couple of years, we were in the 90s. Yeah. And after I retired, two years we won the J.D. Power Award for being best in copier yeah. service. And the kids, the guys hoping my dear would call me and laugh and say, Wes, we had to wait till you retired to win this award. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you led them up to it, you know? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Wow. It was a, it yeah. was a wonderful thing and um, a great experience. Well, and, and folks. And I think it, it was so good for the employees yeah. because in the past, all of our attention was on the sales force and yeah. it stayed there. Sure. But now all of our attention really was focused on the customer. Do they like us? Do they, sure. Will they buy from us again? And you know why I presented that to the board of directors? They were they were not all that impressed until I explained to them that yeah. if the customers like you, every copier is replaced on an average of eighteen months, yeah. and so they're going to replace with you, and they're going to recommend you to their friends, and it's going to cause great growth in the business. Yeah. Now that the, the board of directors could understand, well, they didn't understand some of my vernacular on on the customer yeah. satisfaction. I'm not sure. The problem with boards is on a public company is they're only interested in the value right. of the stock. Right. And uh, right. so if it doesn't improve the yeah. value of the stock, they don't, they're not that interested by and large. That's my experience. There are exceptions to that, of course. Well, I, I think you're speaking uh, to a time in our, in our um, world and especially, uh, you know, here in the American business economy, we know this is an experience economy. You know, a lot, yes. a lot of success is measured by the customers, not in the product itself, not in the fact that the, that the Chick-fil-A food tastes great and things like that. It's on the fact of how was the experience? How was I treated? How did they make me feel? You know, and it's and right or wrong, that's where we are, it seems. And, right. uh, you know, that's, that's why... You know, what I do is such a uh, such a neat, um, you know, aspect of business now because I'm, I'm, I'm playing into that and learning that customer vision matters. And in fact, folks, I want to give you some empirical data here that uh, Wes draws out in his book. And by the way, we're going to have links to Wes's both of Wes's books. And his wife's books. His wife uh, was uh, Bernadine, and, and you know, sorry for her passing. I meant to mention that earlier, but we, you know, uh, thoughts and prayers are still with you guys. And uh, you know, but she was an author in her own right, and some, she had some really cool stuff to say, which I think we're going to get to one later. But um, really, you know, uh, we want to um, take a look at something you said in the book about when it came down to getting that JD Powers Award. Um, and I hope I can say this because it's in the book, but, but as a, as a seller of 
copiers, you had another manufacturer making those copiers. It's called the private label business. I mean, that's what it is. So you had Toshiba making a lot of the copiers at the time you win this award. And Toshiba came in ninth in this because um, they sell their own copiers. You know, they came in ninth in the study. You guys came in first. So it showed that, you know, even though the product was very similar, had different little stickers on it and labels and was called something different, it was a Cajun term you fell in love with in your time in Baton Rouge. And I hope I'm saying this right. Excuse me, Louisiana, Annie's. Um, Lanyap, is that right? Is that how you say it? That's close. I would say lanyard. Lanyard. Okay. Uh, okay. Explain that, what that term is and how it played into customer <laughs> vision here. I think it's great. It just means a little something extra for nothing. In other words, the first way I heard the expression is I bought a suit in Baton Rouge and that's back when we used to wear suits to work, by the way. Some of, some people seeing this will remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wore a suit every day and uh, I bought a suit and as I was leaving, the guy said, here's a tie for you. And I said, oh, I'm not buying anything else. He said, no, no, this is Lanyap. And I said, Lanyap? And he said, yeah, we just throw this in for nothing. It's something for you extra, just because we like your business and we'd like to have it again. And so I thought, wow, what a great term that is. So what we did in services, in all of our services, we did more than the customer required to make them happy. And a great example of that was in the copier business where customer satisfaction related largely to the quality of the copy. You know, is it, is it sharp black on clear white background or is it fuzzy or, or smoky or whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, you got to spend a little extra money yeah. on the copier to keep it delivering real crisp copies. It means back in those days, it's, it required replacing the drum, not rubbing out the drum, but replacing the drum, which costs money. Sure. And we decided to do that in every case. Just um, a little example uh, and you could refer to that to Lanyap. You could refer to it that way because the customer didn't pay any extra for that. They just got it because we decided we're going to keep the quality of their copies up so good uh, that they have no reason to trade with somebody else in 18 months. Uh, and, and it worked yeah. It worked beautifully. Well, Lanyap. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that really made your difference between number one and number nine is you gave the customers extra things. And, you know, here at Simple Biz 360, Wes, you know, I, I know we haven't talked a lot about my side of the fence uh, personally, but, you know, what we do is we talk about customer needs, customer wants, but then there's this ideology of serve to deserve. And if you can give customers mm -hmm. what they deserve – and, you know, if you can take it to that next level, you're, you're giving that, um, excuse me again, I, I keep wanting to say Lanyap. It's, what is it again? Lanyap? Lanyap, yeah. Lanyap. Lanyap's so, close enough. Okay, <laughs> so you're giving that to them without me knowing this Cajun term. I'm giving that yeah. to them and, and suggesting that that's where we really get the, the bevy of great referrals and repeat businesses when we can give the customers what they deserve because we understand what they need and want. But now we're giving them that something extra they didn't ask for. They didn't pester us for it. So if any of you guys want my book or want to know about my business, that's what I focus on. That's what, you know, I call it, um, I call it, you know, overlooked and ignored business principles rooted in common sense. And it's just, a, you know, it's a wonderful concept to try to serve to that deserve level. So. A uh, little, little plug for Simple Biz 360 in the midst of this. But um, so uh, you're a God-fearing man. You know, you, you accepted Christ at 10 years old. You, you, you operate, you know, Jesus is your CEO in essence. God is your CEO yeah. for forever. 
Um, but you have a phenomenal lesson that you share in the book um, that's Christ-centered, and I, I want you to talk about it, and if, if I'm re- recalling this correctly, you were on the, I believe you were in the World Trade Center uh, on a floor when this, when this came about, and I want you to speak about the AFCA um, acquisition, if you could, and what happened in that room, what happened after that, if you could explain it. Be great. Okay. Yeah. First, uh, so AGFA. first went public. Oh, you want to do that? The, no, first? it's the AGFA, right? So it's the AGFA. Uh, yeah, I had it wrong. I called it AFCA. Sorry about that. AGFA is when uh, the, the European uh, uh, company, AGFA, had a copier business and they decided right. to sell it. And um, we looked at it and we thought it would be a good fit for our operation in Europe. And by the way, uh, if you want a wake up call on business practices and you go to Europe, uh, you'd like to see uh, all the anti-business laws that you could imagine are all heaped up in one, particularly in the country of France. I don't mean to knock France because I love their food and they got a lot of good-looking girls there, but <laughs> but their their laws about a business are horrible. You cannot own a, a business there. And so anyway, we thought the Agfa acquisition would help us with all of that. So um, we went down to Harris owned us at that time. I went down to Harris. We talked to them about it. And the boss down there uh, said to me, he said, Wes, if you want to move forward with us, I'll leave that decision in your hands. But uh, there's less than 5% chance I would approve this if you decide to go forward. And, of course, around the table there is all these MBAs, uh, the staff, sometimes referred to as a staff infection. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh... So I immediately said, without even hardly thinking, uh, okay, we'll go forward. And they all fainted because they thought 5%, nobody would go for that. But to me, 5% was pretty good. The way my mind worked, I thought, if I make 20 sales calls, I'll sell one at every time. Every time I make 20 sales calls, one I'm going to buy. So it was, to me, that was good news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good odds, 20 calls. Wow, 5%, <laughs> yeah, not many people would look at that, but go ahead, yeah, great. Yeah, and so we, that is exactly what went in my mind. 5%, that's good odds, we'll do it. Well, David Marini was the, was the European manager. He was there with me. He was so excited that I said that. He, he And he was shocked. We get back to Atlanta and we start. This is where he caught, had to pay. In order to make a proposal, he had to spend a half a million dollars, yeah. $500,000, just yeah. to make the proposal. I saw that. And and so we're doing that and we're going through this and we're saying this is impossible because all the others that are bidding on this are big companies that are op- operating in Europe already and they've got the advantage on us and it's, there's two investment banking firms behind this, and they're expecting to get a big commission. And everything is against us. And the, the board at Harris, when I presented it to them, they said, well, there's no way you could win that. Well, I said, why would they select you? you? Then you can't be high bidder. So how would they select you? And I said, we think there's a chance that they might opt for us because they know we would take better care of their employees and their customers. They might see that. We're going to try to show them that they might be interested in that. They might be a board of directors. I'm kind of, I'm kind of giving them another message here, if you will. Sure. Say so there might be a board of directors who saw that as a value, and so we went back and thinking about the odds against this. I called the management staff together, and in the meantime, I'd been reading about prayer and fasting, and I talked about how God can do the impossible. So I asked them to join me in a time of prayer and fasting. That was unprecedented. 
they asked me a lot of questions about passing about could they have any water to drink? You know, yes, sure. all the questions. Sure. And I gave them outlines about my ideas about passing. Um, and uh, and we did it. The group of some of these guys, you know, were not I mean, not overtly Christian practicing Christian principles. Not all of them, but David Marini and I were. And so we had the time of prayer and fasting. The day came when we got the deal. It was purely an act of God. Wow. Because there was no way, from a practical point of view, you looked at everything you look at. If you just, if you did a Ben Franklin like we did in Selling, sure. and you'd say, it, you know, Lanier is not going to get this. Yeah. And so it was a big, big, big win. And it was a successful acquisition, although extremely, extremely difficult to manage because of the European laws. Yeah. And I won't get into talking about that, but just to say, if you think California has some yeah. weird laws, uh, go to France. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Well, very, unbelievable. <laughs> I can't, you know, very interesting story when these, when they came back and said you were awarded the, uh, the proposal, uh, you know, the deal, you know, they said, we just felt like you would take better care of our people. And, um, and what, yeah. what a testimony to prayer and fasting and letting God take control of a pretty big situation, obviously. And, and that's, that, that says a lot though, Wes, too, about your, you know, that message that they understood from you as the leader of the company at that time, you you obviously projected very effectively that you cared about the employees. Talk about that a little bit, if you could. Well, that's uh, a big thing in the customer satisfaction that comes up is you begin to say, you begin to look at employee satisfaction as well. Yeah. And you can't be good at customer satisfaction unless you have a group of employees that have bought into the deal. And so you begin to study employee satisfaction is really somewhat disheartening to do that because typically they grade you pretty harshly yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you don't like what you see, but you, but you read it and learn from it and you adjust your policies and uh, do the right thing. And uh, of course, a lot of things happen in, in business that are just not right uh, internally practices. And, and so you try to do everything you can to, focus on making the employees happy, realizing that they're going to be some happy people you can't make happy. Uh, yeah. And uh, they may need to change jobs, like the guy fired yeah. in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Uh, he was only going to be happy if he was CEO. And if he had been CEO, it would have been a, a disaster. Yeah. And uh, so, so um, and it was easy to see that. So we really spent uh, a lot of time. Uh, and one of the things that we did is we did a lot of recognition in the company for somebody who did something above and beyond the call of duty for a customer. And I had this gold customer vision pen, um, expensive, that I would give to people who did things like that. Like one guy up in Canada uh, gave up his weekend for a customer who was a lawyer. He had a, a crunch project that he had to get the copies out, and his copy was down. This guy goes and spends the weekend with a guy and gets him back in business. Yeah. We learned about that. I go to Canada and made a video of the guy and praised him and gave him his customer vision award and put it right on his pen right there, and it went out yeah. to the entire company. Uh, I had this view that uh, a company that really loves its employees uh, needs to recognize them, even for small things. Yeah. Uh, so he spent a lot of money on plaques and awards. Yeah. And uh, I made a crack one time at Harris Corporation. It didn't go over well. I said to the chairman, I have little respect for a company that doesn't spend as much on plaques as it spends on R&D. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how that went over. 
<laughs> now I know why plaques were such a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it was always, you know, let's get the plaque, you know. How can I earn the plaque? You know, yeah, so, so go ahead. Exactly. We gave away hundreds, hundreds of dollars worth of plaques. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was, it, it grew and grew on me because we did a lot with salespeople. You know, we really blew a lot of smoke with salespeople. They got all kinds of awards sure. and trips and everything. Sure. And what happened is we shifted to customer satisfaction. I think from an employee point of view, they liked it because in the past, everything they heard was what the sales force was getting yeah. and what kind of trips they were going on. And all of a sudden now, we're seeing our real focus yeah. is on the customer himself. And by the way, when you serve him, there are a lot of nice things that will happen to you as well yeah. as the sales force. Understanding yeah. that nothing happens in this business unless something is sold. Yes. And so we've got to have a great sales force and we've got that. But in addition to that, we want to have a great group of people who serve these customers as they deserve to be served above and beyond the call yeah. of duty called customer satisfaction, customer vision, yeah. seeing everything yep. that we do through the customer's eyes yeah. with the idea of fulfilling every uh, idea that they have about what they expected from us and exceeding it, and, exceeding and, all of their yeah. ideas. That's a loose definition of customer vision. I mean, Wes, uh, yeah, awesome. I mean, I mean, that's just so heartwarming. You grow an endearing, you know, uh, an endearing group of employees and associates as well through through things like this. And I just think it's wonderful that as we're unfolding, you know, your insights from the book and just your insights, and and people are listening. I mean, you know, constantly we're we're we're, we're touching on integrity, humility, care, serving others. I mean, all these essential things that that flow from your heart. Uh, which is a godly heart to, you know, and it doesn't mean we're all perfect or you're perfect or I'm perfect, but, you know, if it right. flows from there, it really flows into the business as well. And it's recognizable. There's, there's certainly a, a large cachet of folks, myself included, that just, uh, you know, loved working for you. And uh, I mean, you know, it, when you have a person uh, that's your leader, so young leaders, if you're listening, if you have a person that's your leader and these things are coming out of your heart, they're going to, you know, they're going to manifest themselves in actions. They're going to manifest themselves in that customer experience on the associate side and on the customer side. That's just, it's, uh, it's what we need today more than anything. So I, I, I really love this. Now, um, guys, again, the book I'm going to say is, is really interesting. Wes is in an elevator with his wife and he's trying to go to the top floor and a lot of these, uh, you know, high end, um, hotels, um, you actually need a key, your room key to get into the top floor. So, you know, she says, Bernadine says, you know, yeah, you get to get to the ninth floor, you got to take out the key and put it in. So Wes thinks, wow, you know, from the shop floor, you know, to the top floor, you need keys, right, to help you get there. And so, you know, what we've been talking about here are some of the keys that Wes illuminates in the book. It's a short read, 134 pages. I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon. Again, we'll leave the link. But Wes, you mentioned something about the four characteristics of, of kind of prioritizing life um, in order of their importance. Can you kind of share what your formula is for the prioritization of life? Ah, well, um, my, I'm flashing back to what I wrote. I can't remember what I wrote. Well, God, God, God well, it's kind of like the old Tom Landry one, you know, God first, you know, yes. God, God first. Yeah. Family second, um, I believe you go into um, your children, your family second, um, yeah. and then your church and your ministry and work third and fourth. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I thought a lot about that. And um, I think the, I remember um, we used to use those films from Vince, Vince Lombardi uh, for sales motivation training. Yeah. 
And uh, Vince Lombardi, would, when he called in his team for the first time, uh, and you remember what a tough coach he was and what a yeah. group of rascals he got together and built yeah. a team out of them. Yeah. You know, he would say, this is a very simple business. There's just three things that I want you men to focus on. If you focus on those three things, we'll be in the Super Bowl. Just three things, okay? And that's how I want you to focus. He said, first is your relationship to God. And uh, he said, secondly, is your relationship to your family. And he said, and third, it's the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you so, go. Prioritize so, things right, yeah. I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, I may have put the Green Bay Packers in the number one position, <laughs> and, yeah. and I shouldn't do that. But uh, th those priorities are really, really uh, great for you to think about, about what you're really working for. Yeah. Who are you serving? What are you doing? Is your job just about making a lot of money? And I think that's what you were alluding to yeah, about yeah. my experience up on the in the World Trade Center. Of, okay. Of oh, being yeah, up yeah. There, yeah. Being up there where a lot of money's flowing, yeah. you know, and a lot of people are getting rich and not doing much to get it kind of makes you think, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot it. I got mixed those stories up, folks. Yeah, that was a different story. By the way, uh, working for you for a year and a half, I had the South Tower as one of my uh, part of my Did territory. You? Yeah. And, 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 wow. yeah. And uh, so I spent a year and a half there. Leo McDonough had, at that time, I believe, had the North Tower. Uh, but uh, what was interesting, um, you know, uh, I, I think out of all that was just, um, I, I remember distinctly, I can still remember that World Trade Center. I can still remember the feel of the elevators going up. I just, you know, I was in there so often. Um, it just is one of those things that never, as a matter of fact, a local uh, radio station here in St. Louis interviewed me about 9-11. And that, that's what I, one of the things I said. I'll never forget that feeling in that elevator. But, um, but folks, uh, switching gears here, back then, Lanier, well, back then, if you got a sales territory in New York City, you got buildings. Like when I first started in downtown, they go, well, okay, your territory is 11 buildings. I said, whoa, 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 time out. 11 buildings? Yeah. And then I got a promotion two years later. I got seven buildings, Wes. They said, yeah, we're promoting you. You got seven buildings. I said, how does that math work? I'm losing a tower from the World Trade Center, and I'm only getting set. Don't. And you know what? Yeah, I made more money doing it. It, made, it worked out. So, uh, you yeah. know, I, who was I? There you go. Submit to authority, right? Okay. If you tell me seven buildings is a, is a promotion, I guess it's a promotion. So it did work out. But uh, yeah. um, you do mention, you know, uh, the relocation four times as a family. I mean, that's a big thing for guys. I turned down a big interview in my life because it would have taken me to Tampa and I probably you know I, I think I would have got the job it would have been a great job working for VF I would have been in charge of um, overseeing Major League Baseball and NFL football um, global sourcing in the Asian hemisphere it's pretty cool um, but I denied I, I didn't take the interview and um, you know, I got interviewed on the phone and then they invited me down. I said no. And it was because I wanted to keep my family in St. Louis. So you relocated four times. Um, would you do that again if you had to, each one of those moves? I would. They were all great moves. Every one of them was profitable. And we learned something new. And culturally speaking, where our children were being raised, the new environments, new churches, uh, new groups of friends, it was very, very good for our family. And our family were, our children were very, I think the word they use now is socialized because they were, they had to learn how to make new friends uh, in the places that we moved to. Um, and so I would say I could actually see a purpose of the Lord 
in each of those locations of spiritually speaking of something he wanted me to learn and and where we went we were in a different church a different uh, environment and there was either somebody there that taught me something that changed my direction in every case wonderful wonderful experience so i would heartily recommend for people who are looking at relocations i uh, would be careful about turning them down uh, just out of hand i think right now you know, if you're moving in the United States, uh, there are some places I would not go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you yeah. a list. But if you'd like to know, call me and I'll tell you exactly where I would not all go. Right. But you can guess yeah. where I would not go. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Absolutely. I can absolutely guess. So, uh, well, thank you for sharing that. So what's uh, going back to prioritizational life. So, you know, obviously, uh, Wes, you're putting God first, you're putting your spouse second, you're putting your family uh, in that in that third position. And uh, you made an interesting comment in your book, which I'd love you to touch on. You realize at one point as you had this shuffling of, of prioritizing life or focus on prioritizing life that you had to you had to stop playing recreational golf. And you still played corporate golf, but explain for the listeners and viewers, what was your, what was the impetus of not playing recreation? Yeah, that, uh, that is at a time when, um, the, the, I think the key element in that is I went to the seminar and the, I got the idea that I was already CEO of something called a family. In other words, it was my responsibility, uh, whether or not I did it, whether or not I did it with gusto or worked at it. It was totally, I was, I was responsible. Uh, if you were looking for who you're going to pin, pin the tail of the donkey, it was going to be me. And so from that, I discovered two things. First of all, uh, I had put the Green Bay Packers at the head of the list. Instead of, I put Lanier up there yeah. instead of my wife. And she was suffering as a result of that. And I could sense that. Uh, and I made a decision that I would spend more time with her and with the family as a result of that study. And that's where the giving up recreational golf, because back in those days, I loved golf. And if I played golf on Saturday, I was gone the whole week. And if I played golf on Saturday, I was gone another day. And they only gave me Sunday with the children. And Sunday, we spent half a day in church. You know, so I had a little bit, not much time just talking to the yeah. children. So I stopped and I started working at home. Uh, we did projects, we did yard work. I worked with the children, particularly my son. Uh, and it was a good time. And, and uh, even the kids today, my son particularly would mention that he noticed when I changed that direction. He remembers it. It was so important. Wow. It was during that period of time that I started uh, studying the book of Proverbs with him. And Proverbs is 31 chapters, and you can do a chapter a day for most months. And it's, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because Solomon wrote that like a book of instructions for his offspring. And uh, it's beautiful, the thoughts are in there. And uh, the ideas that are in there about your children, their relationship with other people. Uh, you don't want your kids to get in with the wrong crowd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the jailer here yeah. at uh, Atlanta spoke at my Rotary Club, and he said, if we could figure out who the wrong crowd is, we'd have nobody in jail. Because everybody in there says, the reason I'm here is I got in with the yeah. wrong crowd. Yeah. I went up and spoke with him afterward, and I said, here's my mother's phone number. She knows who the wrong crowd is. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, she was always saying to me, well, she don't want to get in with that family. That's uh, the wrong crowd. Oh, <laughs> I understood gosh. what she meant. But now I look back on it and yeah. say, she knew who the wrong crowd was. And she didn't want me dating those girls that came out of the wrong crowd. Because she knew I might wind up marrying one of them, you know. So uh, wow. uh, it was a very interesting time. But I really, at that point in time, I guess 
you would say without getting a promotion, I realized I was already CEO of something that was my family. Yeah. I realized that I was responsible. In other words, yep. if the family failed, they were going. To, I was going yep. to be fired. Like the CEO, yeah. if you look at a company, and the company fails, yeah. you know they fire the CEO yeah. and they bring in a turnaround guy. And so knowing, knowing that, I put myself in that position. I decided without bringing in a turnaround guy, I'm going to correct these behaviors. Yeah. And giving up recreational golf was one of those things. Well, you know, I'm so glad you, uh, you said that in the book. I'm so glad you expanded on it now. You know, I read a, I remember, I'll never forget reading what uh, Dr. James Dobson said about, you know, children from, from birth to five years old. It's not what they're taught. It's what's caught. They catch yeah. behavior. And I had a similar experience. My daughter, I loved college football. Long story short, we're on the floor one day. The college football's on in the background. We're playing a board game or doing something on the floor together, just me and her. And, you know, every time I finished my move, I'd watch the game and I wouldn't pay attention to her. And she said to me, and, and it floored me, she said, Dad, you're not paying attention to the game. Either you watch the football game or we don't do this anymore. I, I want, you know, I want to play with you. And Wes, I, I, I just broke down, and I never, I never spent my Saturdays watching college football again because what was my daughter saying? What did you say by not, by not playing recreational golf anymore? It's what this is in today's society a lot, folks. Yes. This, your family gatherings, time with your family, away from work, we have this in our craw, in our paw, in our hand. Way too often we're focusing on this. We're missing absorbing the time we have with the loved ones. And listen to what Wes said. His son never forgot that conversion where Wes stopped playing recreational golf and started spending more time with him. They catch that. It's important to them. It's important to the family, the nucleus of the family, the strength. So please, man, if you're, you know, because I see it too all the time, you know, put this away and absorb the time you have with your kids so uh, and your family. So um, just a couple more questions and we'll uh, we'll be done, Wes. But I, I uh, by the way, hold up that coffee mug if you could. I saw that before. What is that mug there? Yeah, look at that. Lanier, <laughs> Lanier business products, Lanier worldwide. Great. Wes, I yep. worked, when I worked for you, I was in the thought processing division. I always thought that was a crazy thing. You know, you, you want to see me? You have an appointment? What, who do you work for? I work for the Harris Lanier Corporation. I'm in the thought processing division. What is that? You know, but uh, so uh, anyway, it's great. Um, but you mentioned just, uh, you go to Bernadine uh, about, the, you talk about Bernadine about the sixth sense that she had, uh, that women have. Speak to that a little bit if you could. Well, um, if you read the Bible, it talks about when God created man, you realize he had created an incomplete creature. <laughs> he said it's not good for him to be alone. Uh, obviously, God knew that. But he said, so he created a woman to fill up the blank spots in his life. So if you, um, you think about what that means, I, I think it means that... Um, uh, Men and, different are, uh, men and women are very different, but the woman is designed to complete the man. In what ways does she complete him? And most of us resist the ways that she's designed to complete us. Um, for example, I discovered that Bernadine had something called good business judgment. And I could talk to her about a business deal, and she, and she would give me insights into it. That I didn't, yeah. She didn't have an MBA. She didn't have a college degree. How in the world does she know that? Well, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing like godly intuition. Yeah. And so a woman does have a sixth sense. So a failure that we make a lot of times is not asking her opinion. For example, on investments, 
you could say, well, she never studies investments. She's not going to, I was going to make these investments. I found out the hard way that asking her for her help and advice on that was very, very beneficial. And she would give you one time I was talking to a guy about a deal and when we got in the car, she said, I hope you would never consider doing business with that guy. And I said, why is that? She said, during the presentation, you lied to me three times. <clears throat> you know, it went right over my head. Yeah. It didn't go over her head. She had, yeah. she had lights that flashed in her mind when that happened. And that yeah. particular deal, a friend of mine did the deal, bought the deal. I didn't buy it, but the friend of mine did, and he lost $300,000 yeah. as a result of it. So um, wow. um, yeah. if you got a wife, treasure her. The scripture says, uh, uh, you know, be good to her yeah. and love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's really saying yeah. you should be willing to lay down your life for her. That's big. That's that a, is uh, really big. That's real and, big. Uh, a woman will love you and she will do everything in her world for you if she's convinced that you will lay down your yeah. life for her. And so that's uh, those are just a few techniques yeah. that will help you in that regard. But it's a it's a big thing. Forgive me for getting a little emotional. I'm still getting over no, losing my life, you know. I'm not sure I'll ever get over it. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with you. I know, I know my wife for 39 years. I feel the same way about her, you know, and, and I don't give her enough credit for having such great business sense too, but I, you know, I couldn't imagine uh, not being with her. So yeah, I I know where you're coming from and uh, thank you for sharing that. I didn't mean to open up, uh, you know, the emotion, uh, but you know, um, it's okay guys to cry, right? I mean, we can, we can show some emotion. Yeah. um, But we can. Um, So, uh, I read in your book that I guess every interview that's ever uh, you've had, it seems like they ask you what's your greatest success success. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to finish this interview by not asking you that. What do you consider to be your greatest success? Well, it's it's real easy. I would just say in a word, it's my family Uh, to have the kind of family that I've got today is a miracle in this culture Uh, with four children who are all still following the Lord and are all doing good work, good, good work, making a good living. Uh, they all got college educations. Uh, they uh, have produced offspring who are also following the Lord, 22 of them. Of those, uh, 16 of them already graduated from college. And by the way, uh, because of my <clears throat> success at Lanier, I've been able to fund a lot of their college educations so that they finish college without debt, which is another big, important thing yeah. to me. For a kid to finish college, with a degree and have uh, $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 debt hanging over them is horrible. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's easy to say it's my family. And by the way, uh, my family, of course, started with me marrying Bernadine. And uh, if you ask me, what is the greatest thing Lanier ever did for you? You, know, you can think of a lot of things. It promoted me, gave me trips, paid me a lot of money. What's the greatest thing? They, the best thing they did for me is they moved me to Baton Rouge. And that was in right after I cleaned boss's fishing tackle. And he called me in and told me he wanted me to go to Baton Rouge. I had a job off from IBM, by the way, in my back pocket, going to work from IBM versus Lanier. I going to work for Google versus Radio Shack. You know, yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's yeah. huge. So I get to Baton Rouge, and guess who's there? 18 years old, beautiful woman named Bernadine. I met her a year later. We got married. Uh, she wrote in her manual, that the first time she saw me, she loved me. Had to be with the Lord. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, 
That's great, Wes. I'm, you know, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, what, what, a, what a special uh, thing it is to see a man who had a relationship like that uh, so strong with his wife. And, you know, uh, we could only uh, hope and pray for that for a lot of people these days. Well, uh, as we wrap this up, you know, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I mean, there are a lot of ex-linear people probably tuning into this at one point or another. Um, yeah. Is there anything you would like to say to the ex-linear folks who are, who are tuning in, who are listening? Watching? Oh, yeah. I, when we sold the company and I retired, I didn't have a real good platform to do what I wanted to do. But what I wanted to do is tell the employees how much I loved them and appreciated them and what I really worked hard to provide a company that would meet their needs as they got older and they retired and in selling the company, um, they might've thought that I was selling the company for some nefarious reason. But the reason I sell the company is cause as we spun off from Harris, we had this huge debt and I could see that we were hitting the wall. And so instead of letting the company hit the wall and everybody losing their jobs, I decided that selling the company was best. And I thought we picked the very best a company to sell to. There were five prospects. I was the I was the key salesman. I had an investment banking firm, but I took it as my role to sell the company to somebody who would provide jobs for our employees. So I loved all of our employees. And there's certain ones I had closer relationships with that I still have close relationships with. But I loved every single one of them. And I loved the customers and loved getting out there and talking to the customers and finding out what they thought about us. A lady in New York told me one time, she said, Mr. Cantrell, um, would you like to know why I buy all of my copiers from you? And I said, I sure would. And she said, because you got the only salesman that never lied to me. <laughs> yeah, how about that? So it just shows how, how that integrity and that sure. truth of the purpose really pays off. Wow. So, yes, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to all the employees oh. and say, I love you. I appreciate you. I hope everything has worked out good for you. I think we invested in good retirement plans so you're all taken care of, even though you're now somebody with Rico, somebody with other companies. But the amazing thing is how successful all of you have continued to be using some of the principles that we taught you of good business. Yeah. Well, Wes, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, and, and the same question goes out to your family. And I mean, uh, what would you like to say if, to your family? I mean, if anything, I mean, you have, you have this forum. I mean, uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of great grandchildren and, and, future generations, hopefully as long as cyberspace is out there, you know, listening to this interview. So what would you like to say to him? Oh, my family. Well, I just appreciate your good behavior. You know, uh, I'm looking at people that I work with now and their children. And to think that we had four children that we sailed through college and everything without any problems, without any problems at all that were, that were even noticeable that I can recall. So I appreciate their obedience. They were all good students. I appreciate that. And they have produced a great crop of grandchildren, and they're following in the same pattern. And uh, we got a much more difficult world now. My, my children grew up before Internet uh, and before everybody had a phone in their pocket. And nowadays those things are there. And they're not necessarily bad, but they have a lot of bad uh, implications if, you're not, if they're not governed. And so I appreciate the fact that our company, our family has done so well. And what a great pleasure it is for me to spend time with them. And um, to see my role now as a uh, patriarch of a big family, which means I'm a, I'm a provider and a protector of the family. So I would continue to do things as I see it in our family to protect them for their future. 
uh, and most of them listen <laughs> with a with an open heart to wow. what I've got to say. I appreciate that very much. Right, that, it's my job these days. Well, that, that's great hearing hearing that from you, and I'm sure they're uh, tickled by hearing that as well. And uh, Wes, is, before we close, uh, just two more questions. Number the first question is: Is there anything I forgot to ask you? Is there anything else you wanted to add to this interview that I, I failed to ask you? I think we've covered the key things. The uh, I think the big thing to me was the cleaning the fishing tackle because that was <laughs> that was the beginning uh, of my career. And it's one thing where if I hadn't done it right, I'd never had a career like that. Yeah. You know, so it's, you go back when you're my age, you think about triggering events where decisions were made that really changed your whole life. Right. And what would have happened if you hadn't done it? Scott, going to Baton Rouge, I wonder if I hadn't have accepted the offer to go to Baton Rouge, when all the common sense would say, don't go, go with IBM, stay home. Um, I would have never met Bernadine and we produced this fabulous family. Um, and so that was a turning point in my career. And there were other, many other key turning points where you made a decision uh, that maybe was kind of unpopular or there was no written formula for it. But you look back on it now and you say, if I had gone, I could have easily gone the wrong way. Uh, and that decision would have changed my life, changed my career, would have changed my family. Um, and you're grateful for those decisions. And on those decisions, you try to, uh, commit figure ways so you can teach others about those decisions and, and the ingredients in those decisions and how to make good decisions. There's a load of that in that book. <clears throat> a lot of it in the book. A lot of it in my job today, working with a men's organization here at our church, we're just teaching young men uh, about how to make good decisions and not just go with all the flow that's out there for the world. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, I, I appreciate that insight. And, you know, folks, uh, just to close on this end, you know, I can tell you firsthand that, um, you know, I, I was failing at Lanier. I was almost I was almost going to get fired because I was not following the program that was laid out before me. And that program was laid out in a way where they said, Jeff, it's going to sound canned to you and your ears. But to the prospect, it's going to sound planned. And, and it's going to sound better than you think. And I just, I didn't, I didn't go with that flow. The minute I turned that leaf over and I started using the training, everything fell into place and everything worked. So books like yours are analogous to that in that you, you give us keys to success. You give us insights to what really matters. And young folks, if you're listening to this, I encourage you to, to pick up on some of this because integrity, character, humility, honesty, it, it, it means something. It, it definitely means something. And uh, it matters. You know, Jeff, uh, the one thing that uh, we didn't specifically comment on is the subtitle of the book is Releasing the CEO Within. And in writing this book, uh, I'm saying to the public who reads the book, anybody. There's a CEO involved in, in everybody yeah. because everybody is going to be in charge of something. You know, if it's just your life, yeah. you are the CEO. You may be the CEO. You should be the CEO of your family. Yeah. You might wind up being the CEO of a company. Yeah. But releasing the CEO means these principles will release the skills that you need to be the CEO of your life, your company, your family, whatever it is. And that was the idea of that subtitle of releasing the CEO within, that within everybody, uh, there is a CEO. 
is the responsibility awesome. and the ability to do that job. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that and illuminating that too. I appreciate that. Uh, we end we, our last question and uh, it, it, before, and I'll close after this last question, but uh, every, at the end of every show, Wes, we ask our guests to pick a, an important song in their life that they'd like to uh, share with the audience. And we'll put it up on the YouTube experience. It'll, it'll go up in our upper right-hand corner uh, as a, uh, it's a little card that appears. But um, out of all the songs out there, what was the one you picked that means the most to you that you like to share with us at this point? Uh, right now, it would be Center of My Joy. It's a song by, uh, I think his name is Richard Smallwood. Okay. He sings it. And it says, Jesus is the center of my joy. Okay. Everything good and perfect comes from him. That would be it today. I've got others, but that's what I listen to every morning. Okay. I've got Alexa. You know, the only woman I've ever had that does everything I say. <laughs> and, and she plays it for me while I'm still in bed in the morning. All right. So Jesus is the center of my joy. Well, we will share that with everybody. And thank you, uh, Wes, from, from all of us out there in Lanier Nation and uh, for Rick Diana for setting this up. I really appreciate the fact that he uh, got us together on this. Uh, I, I know I speak for all of them. We say thank you so much. For everything, thank you for sharing yourself and your insights and your um, raw emotions and your, uh, you know, just your your testimony and, and just valuable lessons that we could take away with us on our next professional adventure. And so for all the young folks out there, for all the future generations that listen to this, I hope you get something out of it. We'll put all the links up where everybody can find your books and uh, your wife's books as well um, from... The uh, Archway City to the beautiful Georgia Pines of Woodstock, Georgia. Wes Cantrell, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your great leadership. And uh, we just want to wish you all the best, sir. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure for me. All right. Thank you very much. And you have a wonderful day. And folks, we will see you in 168 hours. Take care, Wes. Thank you. <laughs>